Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Are you interested in angels, demons, spirits, ghosts, and monsters? Are you curious about their origins, tales, and influence upon history and on the present day? If so, sit back, relax, and welcome to Southern Demonology, the podcast that explores all of this and more. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, all. Welcome back to another episode of Southern Demonology. As always, I'm your host, JJ. Today, I bring you a grand conjunction of events, an interview with a subject matter expert in Indo-Tibetan Buddhism, which is also serving not only as a listener inbox feature, but also as a community spotlight feature, as Jaybird, as he prefers to be called, is a member of our Discord as well. I had originally planned out a 30-minute to one-hour conversation, but we wound up talking for almost two hours because the conversation was just so engrossing. It will be split up into two parts. The first goes over his background, some information about Buddhism, and the six realms including hell. We'll also cover some interesting parallelisms found between the recent trend in some Catholic circles to only categorize hell as a quote-unquote mental state and Buddhism. And you don't want to miss the second part coming out next week, where he shares some of his experiences performing house cleansings with Buddhist rites. The only other item I want to bring up is the movie for this coming Wednesday. August 24th at 9 p.m. So far, we've tackled some very serious and important horror films. The Exorcist, The Vigil, Terrified, etc. This time, we're going to kick up our heels and enjoy one of the silliest and goriest of zombie movies ever made. Peter Jackson's Dead Alive, also called Brain Dead in New Zealand. It's rather difficult to track down now. I'm not going to get into why that might be, but come by if you haven't seen it. I know you will enjoy because it brought us one of the most immortal lines ever said. I kick ass for the Lord. If you like this podcast and want to support it, then please consider becoming a patron. You can support us for as little as $3 a month and the link is in the show notes. 
Anyway, let me stop babbling so we can get to the good stuff. Sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Jay Bird about Buddhism and the paranormal. Hello all. I am very excited to bring a member of our Discord in for a conversation. Way back in the day, I was able to interview Liston, who was one of our original members of our Discord community and had a great conversation. But since then, the Discord server has been kind of a key and integral part to the podcast. We have built up such a lively, interactive community that has so many different pieces of knowledge that it doesn't matter what the conversation is, so many people can intelligently address it with their experiences, their ideas, their academic studies, whatever the case may be. And I have another one that fits into that bill on all of those fronts. This is Jaybird. I won't go into any more details because it's not needed. He has been a very active voice. He's been a pleasure to be able to interact with, and he has graciously agreed to allow me to talk to him and record, and that is a nerve-wracking thing, so I thoroughly appreciate that. Jaybird, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, JJ. How are you? I'm Luckily recovered from COVID, thank goodness, and yeah, I haven't suffered any long-term effects that I can tell, and I uh, hope it stays that way. But Yeah, yeah I recall you had, a, you had a couple bouts with it, huh? I did, yeah. I was taking that Paxlovid, so I had an initial infection of it, and then I had a, a rebound after... Because apparently the medication, that's just a common side occurrence of it. Yeah, well, I'm glad, I'm glad you're all better. Yeah, you and me, be, especially like the worst thing besides just feeling like I had the worst case of the flu in the world. The worst thing was I tasted metallic butt in my mouth for like two weeks straight. And that yeah, is I, I heard not, about that. Oh, that is not a pleasant experience. <laughs> <laughs> like the bad taste in the mouth. Oh, my God. Yeah, and apparently, like, I was doing some research, like, apparently 5% of people that take it have that experience, and my luck held true yet once again, so. I'm glad you're all better. Oh, you and me both. Well, I want to celebrate the fact that you were here. You have some really interesting backgrounds and experiences. And I would love to be able to share them with everyone who is listening. So let's just start off with some basics. How did you find the Discord server? I think I found it, it was either late last year or early this year through just surfing around online. And I had an experience, which we'll probably get into, which kind of thrust me into the world of what I'll just say kind of classical Christian theology, Catholic theology, angels and demons. And through that, the experience of doing all the research and, and trying to learn as much as I could, I stumbled upon the podcast first and then eventually made my way into the Discord server. And I, and I will point out, I was, on, I was on early this year. Basically, I, had to, I was part of the whole, I don't know if you've read in the news, there was a T-Mobile breach. It was like a massive data breach. Oh, yes, and I do. 
I went through this crazy period of like restructuring all of my personal information, including my cell phone and so on and so forth. So I was off for a little bit and then came back on recently once things had settled down and I realized I wanted to get back on. <laughs> well, we are glad to have you again. Yeah. Data breaches are never a fun thing. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's been a pretty eye opening experience uh, from all I, sides. I can imagine. Yeah. I, uh, I'm a T-Mobile customer as well. Luckily, I'm pretty paranoid about my online stuff, so I had everything already kind of segmented, so it didn't really impact me all that much. But yeah, it's uh, it is an absolute pain. Yeah, I mean the the interesting thing about all this is I had transitioned off T-Mobile like five or six years ago, but the date of the breach, which was actually prior to that, so the actual breach happened. I don't know, it was like 2015 or something, 2016. And they didn't, they didn't even really catch on to it until late last year. <laughs> oh, that's what they say. But typically it's, they knew about it and they just didn't feel like they had to report it until much, much later. Which Yeah, exactly. Often the case. We are glad to have you back. It's, uh, it's been great being able to get your inputs. One of the things that has made your voice not only highly respected educational and has added a lot to the context is that you're buddhist and i was wondering what particular branch of the faith do you belong and what started you along that path yes i've been a practicing buddhist for well over 20 years at this point and my experience and my interest in it started when i was pretty young i think i was about 12 or 13 years old and part of what compelled me into into it was my father. I was raised pretty much, I'll say, like somewhere between atheist and agnostic. I, my mother came up through Episcopalian roots, and my father came up through Roman Catholic roots. But both of them, as they were parenting me, didn't really push any religious agenda for various reasons. I think my father had a very difficult experience in the Catholic Church. But when my father was talking to me one time about spirituality and religion, he really encouraged me to check out Buddhism. And he didn't go into a lot of details because his intuition about it stemmed from his experience in Vietnam. And he didn't, he didn't really talk about his experience in Vietnam very much. But he had told me that he had some exchanges with Buddhists in Vietnam, and it really left a big impression on him. And so, you know, I was struggling. I was kind of an angsty teenager, and he encouraged me to check it out. And he gave me a book by the Dalai Lama. It's called The Power of Compassion. And I still have that book, actually. And, you know, from there, I guess you could just say the rest is history. My training basically evolved into studying Indo-Tibetan form of Buddhism. Or, you know, we just call it Tibetan Buddhism, I guess, mm -hmm. which is one of the lineages that's within the Tibetan cultural practice of Buddhism. And it was it, it was a pretty intense road of of study. I was I was very into it. You know, at that time, I would refer to myself as like hyper orthodox almost in my approach. And uh, it led me into a lot of experiences. I had to learn. Tibetan. I had to learn Sanskrit. I spent a number of years in Asia, 
and then also did a number of very long retreats. And that whole experience was kind of my formal formation of uh, my Buddhist training, so to speak. And that was that was a period that lasted for, you know, I would say from the age of 12 all the way up until maybe my late 20s. And then at some point I had to make a a very discreet decision about the course of my life. And it was basically, am I going to move to the East for good and kind of become a hermit? Or am I going to try to integrate all this stuff into some kind of Western Western lifestyle experience? And so, you know, I chose the later for various reasons. And, and you know, how has that gone? How have you been able to take what you learned and apply it to a regular western lifestyle i mean you know to be totally frank with you it was very difficult at first i could imagine yeah uh but that's that's part of why i wanted to do it because there was a part of me that felt like i had seen a lot of people in a similar position as mine that somehow their spiritual path became a way to bypass the realities of the world like it was a it was a movement to say okay i just i just don't want to deal with this this world's too crazy i'm going to go tuck myself away in in some like himalayan retreat or something like that just not deal with any of this and you know that i didn't want to go down that path but i would say for the first 5 years or so as i kind of made this transition and i i did it very quickly i will i will say i was married pretty quickly i had kids at still a fairly young age and so it all hit me like a kind of avalanche. And I would say my whole practice since then has been about continuing this process of integrating. I had spent one point during my training in very strict retreats, which is, it's actually interesting. It's something I wanted. I've never really talked about it publicly. And, and a, a lot of people that have done them don't for different reasons, some of which is it's not something traditionally that you're supposed to talk about too much. But, you know, just to give people a sense is I, I went from a period of my life, we were meditating somewhere between like 12 and 14 hours a day. We were in a retreat cloister, which was completely sealed off, which meant there was there was no outside contact. And the teacher would come in and, and give us teachings. And then we would, we would spend many hours of the day meditating and chanting and saying prayers. So you can imagine going from an environment like that and then coming out and all of a sudden it's it's groceries and it's bills and it's it's all kinds of things. And it can be very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I especially in the beginning, I mean if you're thrust if you come from the west and there's not a huge focus upon meditation. And then you're thrust into an environment in which is so intensive in that. How did you learn to adapt? And the reason I ask is I remember going on a missionary trip as a kid and suddenly being asked, for the first time in my life, to pray for a couple of hours at a time. And 
I thought I was going to go mad. Like I got the first five minutes filled with my normal litanies. And then after that, it was, it was a struggle to, to keep going and to try to stay concentrated. Yeah. I mean, that, that's definitely all real. And the interesting thing is part of my process of integrating these things is to try to explore other, you know, Western religious traditions to find synergies and experiences that are, that are similar, but within a Western framework. So some of it, to be honest with you, is I think my process of integration is very much part of what, you know, led me to your podcast. I have a very, um, I'm not going to, I guess it, you could say a, a studious mindset, and I feel like I'm never done learning. And uh, part of that learning process has been continually trying to figure out avenues to integrate what I've learned into a more Western framework so that there's some benefit for me and contextualizing my experiences, but also helping others when I can. But I will say that there are many people that leave those, ret- those retreats and they have a very hard time ever really recovering or they end up going back into retreat. I and mean, I think that's part of the challenge of the tradition at this point is that there are a lot of Buddhist centers that are developing in the West, but the, the path working that is established for developing people into more or less what you would, you know, equivalent to priests or ministers, they st- we still haven't really worked out a way to do that yet, because right now most of the options are to, are to go into these very traditionally intensive programs. And the success rate, for lack of a better term, is still kind of to be determined. You know, that being said, I, I look back now and I, the experience was amazing. And I, I wouldn't do anything differently, but I'm also trying to figure out ways that I can take that work into, into the world I'm in now and, and have it be some benefit for people because it's kind of like you were saying. So in the, in the tradition, there could have been people that had, had done that retreat. And the second they come out, the whole community is rallied around them and they say, yes, why don't you come to our center and, or why don't you come to our monastery and help teach or. You know, they become ministers in their community in Tibet and in India and other places. But in America, when you come out of a retreat like that, like literally nobody cares. (laughs) Nobody. (laughs) There's no demand for your services, so to speak. And, you know, I didn't I didn't even bother putting it on my resume because it just would have been too crazy. So in some ways I had to put it all aside initially. I mean, I really had to kind of flip the switch in my brain. And just say, okay, that was an amazing experience. There's no way I'm going to be able to continue practicing like that. So just focus on getting a job and feeding your family. And, and as things come along, maybe you can, you can figure out how to get it integrated back into your experience. I can certainly understand that desire to compartmentalize uh, or just to completely leave it off from a resume. Whenever I entered into the tech field and I had my education listed on my CV, then sure enough, I get some odd looks. And like, even though, you know, religion is typically verboten during an interview, some people just break the rule and they just start quizzing me about stuff. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I, when I have, 
you know, this is the first time I've ever talked about it publicly, frankly. But, you know, when I relay my experience, it's usually met with a lot of warmth and interest and inquisitiveness. But at the same time, it, you know, there's no real translation for it into the professional workforce, right? Exactly. For those who are not entirely familiar, are there any defining features of Indo-Tibetan Buddhism that separates it from other paths of, of Buddhism? I know that's I mean, a very yeah, broad are, question. So, <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's a broad question, but I will say, you know, without getting into too much kind of like academic introspection, in the form of Buddhism I practice, it's called Vajrayana. Uh, V-A-J-R-A-Y-A-N-A. And that translates into the diamond vehicle. It is a, a corpus of teachings that came from the Buddha that we would equate to more of the mystic side of Buddhism or the esoteric side of Buddhism. So it's highly ritualized. There are prayer beads. There are mantras. And there is also a certain level, a lot of work that is done with what we call the subtle body. So it's not just a process of, of working with your brain and your consciousness, but it's also a process of working with your body through what we kind of define as a, um, there's like a meta body that is composed of energy, winds, channels. And so in that way, it is, it would be considered a more esoteric form. And, you know, often when people are encounter it, they note how colorful it is. Sometimes you'll see pictures of these, what we call tankas, which are Tibetan paintings, which have these really wild looking figures on them. They can be very beautiful. They can be very wrathful. But that's, that's essentially the, the encapsulation of, of what it looks like kind of externally. And, you know, the big claim to fame of the tradition is that you, if you practice right and you're diligent enough, and this really separates it from some of the other traditions you can achieve awakening in one lifetime by using these special practices that are more esoteric and not so public. And so that's why there's such an emphasis on doing these long retreats that I just talked about. Gotcha. And would that be Parinavana? Yeah. Parinavana is the, I think it's the Pali or the Sanskrit term for, for awakening. And yeah, what, those are the only terms that I know. I apologize. Yeah, no, no, it's okay. And it, it but what distinguishes it is that, uh, like in the traditions you might see in Thailand, they believe that awakening is a process that happens over many, 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 many lifetimes. It's it's like a slow and steady wins the race course. And in the form of Buddhism that you might see in Japan, they at times almost throw the concept of awakening out the window and they focus on the ability to just help sentient beings through the path of what's called a bodhisattva. This is somebody that has basically decided to put the welfare of all other beings first and foremost in their spiritual path. And in the Tibetan tradition, it actually encapsulates all of those other philosophies into one path. See, that that is so interesting. I know that in china there's a there is a strict differentiation between the northern and southern schools of buddhism where one focused upon instant awakening 
the other only believed that through the slow grind could that ever be achieved. And you see that kind of split. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Taken off into different traditions. If you compare Nichiren Buddhism to Zen Buddhism in Japan, or to, to go on even further, it's just, it's a beautiful kind of lineage that has, progress through the different traditions of buddhism it's a beautiful thing yeah i really love it i mean it also makes it very hard to encapsulate what buddhism is right exactly like when somebody somebody's a catholic you say well what do catholics believe and it's there's a whole corpus and catechism of orthodox theology and and ethics but in buddhism it's it's much more decentralized than that and and this is kind of one of the things I wanted to get into with you because it's interesting. Culture has a huge role to play as well, especially in the kind of view of the supernatural or the paranormal. There is a core set of beliefs that all Buddhists pretty much hold in principle, such as, you know, rebirth, awakening, somewhere between four and six realms of uh, reincarnated existence. But outside of those tenets, there's a lot of variety in how those things express themselves through culture. True. And Tibetan, I don't know too much about Tibetan Buddhism. It was never one that I specifically studied. But just as you said, it has one of the richest tapestries of the esoteric of that surrounds. I know it has like a vibrant demonology that's associated with it is that correct or am i wrong yeah yeah absolutely i mean that was one of the things when i started for formally studying so at some point in my practice i made the transition from oh i'm i'm a westerner and i'm interested and i'm learning and then at some point when you decide to start doing longer retreats you transition into okay like now now we're going to get into the traditional lineage. And, you know, this lineage is 1,500 years old. And these practices, some of them are over 1,000 years old. And through that process of getting those transmissions, you know, in a lot of the teachings I received, there was a huge amount of what I will just describe as animist and spiritualist traditions, which I personally believe were probably. They were residue of some of the cultural shamanic practices of the Indo-Tibetan plateau that had been appropriated into Buddhism 
so that the culture could take on the practice more fully. And it was an interesting experience. I mean, some of the stuff I learned, it was so out there that, you know, I would go through the process and say, okay, we're going to do this prayer. We're going to do that. But it almost made no sense to me because it was so culturally specific, right? And honestly, that's one of the things that fascinates me the most. I mean, one of the the founding bedrocks of the podcast is examining how the remnants of Second Temple Judaism have been embedded and still influence the modern day, especially when it comes to demonology. So to hear kind of the same thing going on is, it's absolutely fascinating because yeah, I think that you're right. I mean, if you take, and this is not a disparagement by any means of the word, but if you take, say, Pure Land Buddhism, in which the Buddha is actually worshipped as an actual deity, which is vastly different than almost every other form out there, you have to wonder, you know, how did that come across except for incorporating, you know, specific uh, cultural touch points in order to get to that point? Yeah, absolutely. And I think like with the Pure Land Buddhism example, and this is some of the stuff like once we start diving into the paranormal aspects of it that I'm really interested in is, you know, in Japan, they had an overlay. So I would say they're, they're more native underlying religious principles were based around Shintoism, right? Which was Absolutely. very kind of deity focused. And so, you know, you'll see an interesting thread of this kind of underlying Shinto culture throughout most of the Buddhist practices in Japan, whether it's Zen or Pure Land. Yeah, in fact, in Japan, unless you are a a priest for a particular religion, most common people, they will celebrate both, and they yep. don't see a conflict with that. It's just like how in early days uh, in China, people were Confucian during the day for business and then Taoist at night. And in, in for Japan, it is we practice Shinto certain rituals for these holidays and then for major life events, especially weddings and for funerals, then all of that shifts over to Buddhist rites. Yeah, that's right. And uh, an interesting example of that that I always think of is that in Shintoism, they have a certain element of ancestor worship or the spirits of yes. their family and the people that came before them, right? But in the you know, Buddhist cosmology or theology, there really is no, there is no room or accommodation for ancestor worship because fundamentally the belief is that when somebody passes on, they reincarnate into a new form. And their spirit, their spirit may be around for a period of time, but ultimately they transition. Yeah, and so you but do it, get this really interesting blend because you can see that ancestor worship very plainly in people's homes. They have altars to past loved ones. Yeah, exactly. They have a strict up to, I don't remember the exact days, but to like 49 days after a person dies, that's when they ascend. Yeah, I mean, you have Oban, of course, which, you know, it celebrates 
the spirits of the dead coming back to the world, which is why summer is always the summer of fear for Japan. But yeah, it, that's right. So it's interesting. So that that 49 day period is actually pretty orthodox Buddhist because there's a lot of teaching that stemmed from India about the longest it takes for somebody to transition in what we call the intermediate state or the state between death and their next life. The, lo- the longest it can go is 49 days. But as you mentioned, so they will do the 49 day ceremony, but then they will also leave an altar up for their for their deceased loved ones and, and regularly make, make offerings to it. Absolutely. Well past the 49 days, like these, these shrines can be um, fixtures in people's households and stuff. And, and that aspect of it is, is not Buddhist from an Orthodox perspective. It certainly is part of their uh, interpretation of it, but it's something that I believe stemmed from their older, more resident spiritual beliefs. Completely agree. And honestly, I I think that Japan is so willing to accept the paranormal as just a statement of life as a, you know, I think that it truly is a remnant of, of Shintoism that has pervaded all of culture. But I mean, I, I think that Buddhism plays a, you know, a good part of that as well. But yeah, it's honestly, if I had five lifetimes to devote to different PhD topics, that would definitely be like number three on my list. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I love it. I love the conversation. I mean, this is all the stuff that I really get into. It's the the interplay between the very real, in my opinion, supernatural plus belief plus culture. All of these variables contribute to these experiences we have. And I don't think you can look at any one of them in a vacuum. You know, I think they're all related. Absolutely. It's Heidegger's Invisible Them. You yeah, exactly. <laughs> So uh, I know that uh, in the Discord server, you have referred to assisting others with spirits. And I definitely want to take the conversation to the, the more paranormal side, as we have alluded to a few times in the conversation. How did you do that? And what have you experienced? Okay, now we're going to get into the, the meat of it here. I'll just start with a little preamble. And this is part of the reason I decided I wanted to do this podcast, because not many people are speaking about this publicly from the Buddhist perspective. But I just have to point out that as Buddhism makes its way west, there is a strident, almost unconscious movement to put Buddhism into a materialist postmodern box. What and I say this that? because it's it's really important in my pers- my perspective. When you learn about meditation or most of the things you hear about meditation these days, 90% of those practices stem from some orthodox form of Buddhist teaching on meditation. But those practices are provided as part of a spiritual path that leads to some form of what I'll just say is religious awakening. And it's being reduced somewhat to something that's on an app that something and it's something that can help you alleviate stress. And there's definitely benefits for that. Are you trying to say that calm is not going to allow you to reach uh, nirvana? (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, calm will definitely help you. There's definitely benefit in it. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that Buddhist cosmology envisions a world that is way more dynamic, way more spiritual, and way more complicated than just meditating, right? Absolutely. I mean, just for example, the Buddha taught that there are six realms of existence in in our consciousness. And four of those six realms are formless. Only two of them are something that would be identified as being here on Earth. The other four realms stem the gamut of everything from gods to demigods to what we call hungry ghosts, which I can talk about in a little bit. That's a, that's a pretty uh, common feature across all cultures is this notion of hungry ghosts and hell realms. A lot of people are actually shocked when they find out that Buddhists believe in hell. And I would even venture to say that some notions of Buddhist hell would make the Christian version look like a walk in the park. <laughs> really? Now, I knew that Buddhism had a concept of hell. And yes, I was shocked the first time I ever learned about that. But how so? Like, how, how, is, it, how is it worse? I, I'm really curious. Well, I'm not. I was just saying that to be. Uh, oh a no, bit I know. I'm not. But, I know you're trying to be that. But I mean, I, I would love to get a take. Like, what's the what's the compare and contrast uh, to you? Good analogy would be like Dante's Inferno, where Dante envisioned these various levels, so to speak. Yep. Of suffering and hell. So that that idea has been around from the very beginning of when the Buddha started to give his teachings. He, he taught something similar 2,600 years ago. For example, in the tradition that I'm part of, there's actually 16 different levels of hell. Eight of them are associated with fire, and eight of them are associated with ice. And, you know, you can get into really nitty-gritty detail about each one, but, like, just for example, in one of them, in one of the fire realms, there are swords raining down on you consistently until you get chopped up. And then the second you die, you're reborn and you proceed again to run around trying to get away while swords rain down on you. Or in one of the um, colder hells, there's one version where you basically freeze to death and then these demons come out and basically break up your body with a hammer. And you go through that process over and over again until you're reborn. And, and, then, and then, of course, in some traditions, there's a special hell for lapsed Buddhists. <laughs> <laughs> so depending on which country and which tradition you're in, there is a special hell for people that are more or less called oath breakers, which is exceptionally tormentous. Because not only did they not live a good life, but they gave up on the path to awakening. So these are, these are all aspects of Buddhist cosmology that are 100% real from a theological standpoint and a scriptural standpoint, but that nobody really talks about that much. But the reason I thought it's important to bring up is because, again, going back to this whole idea of Buddhism being shoved into this materialist box, it is a little bit of what I'll just call, for lack of a better term, there's some cultural appropriation going on in which people are taking the aspects of Buddhism 
that comport to their mindset or their worldview. And if something like one of these hells is mentioned, or even the notion of ghosts, it is simply um, thrown out as cultural superstition. So it's the Lululemon of yoga applied to Buddhism. Then. Yeah, that's, a, that's actually a really good example. Yes. I do have a quick question, and this is not, none of this is meant to be disrespectful. How does the concept of a, of a hell realm coexist with an idea of reincarnation? Yeah, so the, so the whole idea is that within these six states of existence, so, the, so just to clarify, there's, I'll give you all six. There's gods. There's demigods, which are like, you know, you might think of like as an analogy of like Hercules or something. They're kind of Mm -hmm. very powerful, but they can be spiteful and there's a lot of feuding going on, right? There's humans, there's animals, there's basically what's called the hungry ghost realm or the ghost realm, and then there's hell. And the whole idea is whatever your karmic disposition of your life is, as you pass on from this life into the next, the karmic propensities that you have incurred through this life then determine where you're going to go in the next life. And it's not always guaranteed that you're going to go be reborn as a human. And there's a whole set of teachings around the six afflictions for each realm in which, like, for example, desire Desire is the affliction of the human realm. So if your life is overrun with desire, then you're more likely to be reborn as a human, right? Anger is the affliction associated with the hell realm. So if you're basically a a really bad person and, you know, you're, you're murdering people, you know, you're raping people, your whole life is dictated through anger then the propensity of being reborn in the health is greater. Gotcha. So all of these things fit into our own actions. It's our own actions that kind of determine where we're going to go within one of these six, these six states of beings. And some, some teachers also use an analogy that these six states of being are also an analogy for our mental state. So like you could be a human, but we've all experienced moments of severe anger or pain in which you could say you were in health. There is an analogous set of teachings like that. But from an orthodox perspective, they, they are very much real and they provide a cosmological framework for the existence of things which materialism and science doesn't have an explanation for yet. Are there any modern movements within Buddhism that? attempts to distance the religion away from these physical realms and make it all about the mental. And the reason I ask is we've seen this happen within Catholicism, where we've had, you know, multiple people say, oh, hell is not really a a real place. It's just a, a, it's a, it's a mental condition. It's not so much of a you're going to be thrown into a horrendous place for eternity if you do bad. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I mean, that was why I kind of got up at my soapbox 10 or 15 minutes ago and started talking about this 
this movement to push Buddhism into this kind of postmodern box, so to speak. There are okay. definitely people that view the tradition in, from a completely psychological model. It is, it is completely about your psychology and any reference to demons, ghosts, hell. You know, it's interesting. Anything they reference, when you look at it really closely, anything that looks unpleasant from an ego standpoint, they will immediately write off as metaphor or allegory. But they still believe in things like awakening, right? So they, they still think that it's possible to become enlightened, but they don't believe in the other side of the coin. They think all of that is, is simply a metaphor. Yeah, it's, I think it's an unfortunate side effect of the scientific method. Science is phenomenal. It should be trusted in terms of the science, if the scientific method is truly followed through, but you also have this unconscious bias now of unless it can be proven through theory and tests, then it absolutely cannot exist. And I, you know, in addition to whatever fast paced lifestyle that you want to throw into the mix that has made that crumble even more, but yeah, I, I agree. And I, you know, I, I have a great respect for science. I do too. You know, in my own personal life, my professional life, it's a mix of engineering and business. I work with a lot of scientists. I work with a lot of engineers. I've managed them, you know, but it, but at a certain point, even science breaks down, you know, a lot of, there are things that are starting to be discovered in quantum physics that can only be explained through theory. They can make things work, but only by inserting theoretical variables to kind of represent demonstrated phenomenon that they have no way to measure yet. And even, you know, if you go and look at the Big Bang Theory, yes, we can say there was a Big Bang, but what created the Big Bang? And a lot of times what you'll get in response is, well, okay, just give me one miracle and then I'll explain the rest. <laughs> true. Very true. If you happen to have ever peeked at my YouTube playlist, then you'll see me subscribe to like 30 different physics channels that try to explain quantum mechanics in great detail. And I, I love it. I love, I mean, just the fact that, you know, back in the 1890s, there was a definitive belief that We've nailed physics now. We know everything there is, and now we can cross-apply that, integrate chemistry, and we can explain everything. That's and right. And then, you know, everything since then has just blown the doors open of, nope, now we have quantum foam, and it just keeps going on from there. It's a beautiful thing, honestly. <laughs> I have a deep respect for physics, and the thing that I love about the discoveries coming up in quantum mechanics is it's really just giving us insight into how much we still don't know. You know, I mean, if you look exactly. at these phenomenon of superposition and entanglement and these things, we can observe them and we know they now exist, but we have no idea why. Spooky action in the distance. That's what it was. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Southern Demonology. Find us online at southerndemonology.com 
where you can find all of our social and podcasting links. Also, if you have a moment, please feel free to rate this podcast and leave any encouraging feedbacks that you may have. As always, I am JJ and it has been a pleasure getting to talk to you today.